Corinthians chapter 6, today reading beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter in verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Uh, you know that we are a church that is dedicated to worshiping together. Uh, we do not take the children of our families uh, and whisk them away when the sermon begins. Uh, hopefully it's uh, lively enough that they can all pay attention. Uh, but that means that sometimes uh, we can have interesting studies as we seek the full counsel of God's word and all of the issues to which God has wisdom uh, to speak to his people. Uh, today, we're going to be dealing with one such issue. Uh, as we've been studying marriage and sexuality in the scriptures this summer, today is the fifth uh, session looking uh, today at the first of two sermons, two studies in the scriptures on sex itself. We've uh, studied uh, God and his relation to us as creatures. We've studied the way that he has made men and women. We've studied uh, what he purposed and what he planned for marriage. Uh, today, and also the next time we come together, we're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians. Uh, two passages at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 give a very unique balance to the idea of human sexuality as we find it in the scriptures. Because on the one hand, at the end of chapter 6, the, uh, the message is essentially negative. Flee. Here are things that you must not do. In the beginning of chapter 7, the message is very positive. Here are things that you ought to do. As believers, we need both. We're going to look at both. So today, just looking uh, essentially at the negative, at the issue of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Uh, and as we go to the Lord, let's go to him in prayer and seek his blessing on our study together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that you equip us for every good work by your word and by your indwelling spirit. Give us, Father, wisdom to hear from you. Give us also obedience to follow you. And give us faith to trust in you while we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study together his truth today. Perhaps you have noticed, uh, as, as I have noticed, that we live in the midst of a, a sort of strange sort of schizophrenia concerning human sexuality in our culture. When it comes to these things, on the one hand, many people in the world today want to make sex something relatively unimportant. That's the message. It's casual. Something transactional. It's merely something that consenting individuals may choose to do or not to do whenever and however and with whomever they like. It's really very unimportant, we hear on the one hand. On the other hand, there are those who view sexuality as practically ultimate. People who argue that the most important freedom that a person can have is the freedom of sexual expression, without constraint, without consequences. People who might argue that among the worst things you can do to a person is to pass judgment, or to pass shame, or to pass legislation concerning their human sexuality. Sam Harris, I think, gives us uh, a snippet of this schizophrenia. Uh, Harris, you may be aware, is among the thought leaders of the so-called new atheism, together with men like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett. Uh, and, and concerning Christians and their sexual standards, Sam Harris says this. He says, your principal concern appears to be that the creator of the universe will take offense at something people do while naked. This prudery of yours contributes daily to the surplus of human misery. Do you hear it? The schizophrenia there. The double-mindedness. First, he wants to downplay the significance of sexuality. Sex is practically nothing, he says, so he gives us this juxtaposition. Perhaps he wants us to make us, uh, wants us to feel silly by the comparison. So he speaks of the creator of the universe on the one hand, alongside people, things people do in private. Perhaps he, he wants us to agree with him that surely there are more important things in the world to be concerned about. Sex is relatively unimportant. And then on the other hand, he suggests that Christian sexual standards heap ever more misery on an already miserable world. That by your prudery, he says, you contribute daily to the surplus of human misery. He's suggesting that sexuality is rather important. He's suggesting that denying the freedom of guilt-free sex leads to palpable damage done among humanity. This is the spirit of our age. It is the voice on the one hand that says sex is nothing. You can do with it as you please, really. It's all up to you. And on the other hand, that says, actually, sex is everything. It is our greatest pleasure. It is our central identity. Don't you know this is who I am, we hear in the world. Far too often when Christians encounter this kind of thinking, we get swept up in the schizophrenia as well. There is, of course, uh, the ever-present temptation simply to believe and to swallow the lie of the world, to go along with that kind of thinking. To say, you know, what we do in private shouldn't matter. It must be possible, we imagine, to have sound Christian doctrine without sound Christian obedience. Maybe sex isn't that important. 
But then on the other hand, there is that knee-jerk reaction that always wants to answer licentiousness with legalism, that wants to put constraints that God has not put around these things, that practically wants to suffocate and deny good gifts that God has given to his people. Sex, by the way, is a good gift that God has given to his people. It's not the ultimate good, but it's part of his gift to humanity. The, man, uh, the God who made men and women made them for one another. He made them for marriage. He made them for children. He made them for joy. He made them for glory. He made them for enjoyment of him through his gifts. Lord willing, next time, as I, as I mentioned not next week, two weeks from now, we're going to look directly at God's good gift of sex within marriage. But today we're dealing with the issue of sexual immorality. You understand that in the scriptures that's a blanket term. It covers lots of individual sins. Sins like fornication, which is sex outside of marriage. Sins like adultery, which is sex that breaks the bonds of marriage. It's a blanket term that covers things like lust and homosexuality and pornography. And it's not an exhaustive list, but they all fit in that category. They're all sexual immorality. And even reading this passage on the surface, the clear teaching is that sexual immorality is wrong. It is an evil that ought to have no place in the life of the believer. But as you hear that truth, notice how Paul gets there. He's not shouting down from some soapbox of legalism. He doesn't argue against immorality by saying, by the way, sex is bad. He argues against immorality by saying, by the way, the body is good. One commentator wrote that this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is one of the most important theological passages concerning the human body. What we should believe about uh, about who we are and how our bodies have been made and what they're for in the first place. I think that's true. As we open this chapter together, I, I want to help you see three commitments that God has to the bodies of his people, the bodies of believers. First, we find in this text that God is committed to raise our bodies from the dead. He's committed to the resurrection of our bodies. Secondly, God is committed to unite our bodies to Jesus Christ. He's committed to the union of our bodies. Third, God is committed to claim our bodies for his glory. God is committed to our bodies. He's committed to the resurrection of our bodies and the union of our bodies and the glory of our bodies. That's where we're headed today. We begin with God's commitment to raise our bodies from the dead. This first section of Paul's argument runs from verses 12 to 14. It culminates in this great reminder that those who are in Christ Jesus have a future to look forward to. Pick it up, halfway through verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. This is the first truth that Paul uses to push back against the pull of immorality. It is the truth that the Lord has an eternal purpose, even for the bodies of his people. The human body is not merely a container into which God puts our soul for a short period of time. The body is also part of God's plan for salvation. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is proof of that. 
Because God will raise our bodies with Christ when he returns, we now should deal with our own bodies as things that are destined for transformation, for resurrection. Well, that's the basic shape of this section, but we have to back up. Because Paul's not, uh, he's not teaching these things in a vacuum. Uh, you notice in our ESV, at least, in most uh, contemporary modern translations, that a few of the statements in verses 12 and 13 are surrounded by quotation marks. Do you see that? Quote, all things are lawful for me. Quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In biblical Greek, there was no such thing as a quotation mark, but the editors and the translators here are trying to help you understand that most likely Paul is responding to something the Corinthians has said to him. Maybe he's quoting the spirit of their age, the slogans that, that summarize their approach to morality. Today, these short snippets, these maxims are the things that would show up in memes or in hashtags, right? So, uh, so you might send your buddies a, a picture of your weekend in Vegas, uh, hashtag ATL, and everybody would know all things are lawful, right? You can do what you want. These quick little snippets that we throw out, and everybody's supposed to understand because it's already underneath the surface, it's already in the waters in which you're swimming. Well, in the Greek and the Roman worldview, these are some of the values that carried the day. When we take them together, they are an intoxicating cocktail of self-determination on the one hand and the disposability of the body on the other. It's possible that that first quote, all things are lawful for me, it's possible that that was a perversion of a message that Paul had preached to them. You remember that Paul is the apostle of grace. We are not under law, he says. He, he tells the Galatians that for freedom, Christ has set you free. And it's possible that the Corinthians took that teaching and they ran with it in the wrong direction. I think it's just as likely that this idea was already a part of their own culture. They didn't have to pervert anything that Paul was giving them. Corinth, of course, was a Roman city, not a Jewish one. The issues that we see Paul dealing with in both of these letters are not typically Jewish hang-ups, but Roman hang-ups. They seem to be more influenced by first-century Roman worldviews about morality and how morality was incredibly relative. You know, of course, that the first-century world did not operate on strict standards of right and wrong. Instead, they operated on strict standards of honor and shame. Anything that was honorable was allowed. Anything that brought shame on your family or your superiors, anything that brought shame on the empire, well, that was forbidden. Today, the term that we use to talk about this is a social construct. And in that time, the famous orator Cicero put it this way. He said, if anyone thinks that youth should be forbidden to have affairs, his view is contrary not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and to the conscience of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice, he asks? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? Do you hear what he's saying? Hashtag all things are lawful. Why? Because morality is what we make it. It's just a social construct. There is no one to tell me what I should do. There is only what we decide ought to be done. Now that line in verse 13 is almost certainly a quote from the Roman culture. Quote, food for the stomach, 
stomach for food. You, you understand the context. This is telling us this is a euphemistic way of referring to sexual activity. It boils it all the way down to, to arguments about organs and appetites. After all, the, the logic might go, it is perfectly natural. What's the point in having an itch that you're not supposed to scratch? And so it's the approach that takes sex and makes it about as significant as grabbing a handful of almonds to tide you over between lunch and dinner. It makes choosing your sexual partners about as significant as putting on a new outfit each morning. After all, it's very natural. It's just something you do with your body. These are the kinds of cultural and religious assumptions that Paul is encountering when he goes into Corinth. And when you hear those kinds of arguments, they ought to sound very familiar to you. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. These are also the waters in which we are swimming. Don't worry so much about sex, says our culture. Don't get so pious. Don't be preachy. Don't be such a prude, says Sam Harris. After all, it's, it's harmless, isn't it? It's natural, isn't it? All things are lawful. Food is meant for the stomach. Paul denies both approaches. Now concerning that idea, the harmlessness of sexual immorality, notice what he says. He makes the point that even if it were harmless, it's not. But even if it were, just because it's harmless doesn't make it helpful. That's what he says. All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. That term helpful in the context of 1 Corinthians is tied inseparably, not just what is good for you, but what is beneficial for the community. Remember the other hang-ups that were going on in the church in Corinth. These new believers are still stuck in that pre-Christian pursuit of whatever made them feel good while they ignore the needs of people around them. So they craved knowledge for knowledge's sake. Paul said, no, you have to press on to love. They were puffed up with themselves and felt pretty good. And Paul said, no, you have to build one another up. So here he's saying, not everything you can do is something you should do. Not everything that is possible is helpful. Not everything leads to Christ-like love among the community of God's people. Not all things are helpful. In fact, he goes on, those things might be downright destructive. All things are lawful for me, he quotes again, but I will not be enslaved by anything. If you have ever counseled or parented or been married to someone who is stuck in a cycle of sexual sin, you will not at all be surprised that even our secular worldview treats this as another addiction like drugs or alcohol. Something that pulls you in and gets you stuck in a cycle you don't know how to break. Uh, Screwtape calls it the ever-increasing craving for the ever-diminishing pleasure. It's a downward spiral of enslavement. Or if you've had first-hand experience with these sins, you know there are some desires that have the ability to consume the one who pursues them. You know the way there are images and memories and fantasies that live rent-free in your consciousness and color the entire way that you see the world around you. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27, warns us not to imagine that we can take fire into our laps without our shirts being burned. Paul's saying something similar. 
his message seems to be, don't play with matches while you're carrying an armload of tinder. Not everything you can do is something you should do. I will not be enslaved by anything, he says. But the real crux of his argument comes when he shows us that living for the enjoyment of sexual desire is the very antithesis of the plan that God has for his people. Verse 13, food's meant for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. When he says that, by the way, I don't think he's telling us about whether there will be food in heaven. I don't think that's the point he's, he's making. Rather, he is telling us He's showing us that those who spend their lives living for bodily pleasure will, when Christ returns for judgment, they will receive God's condemnation. If that's what your life is about, just filling your belly, euphemistically speaking, if that's what you make your greatest joy in this life, you will receive God's condemnation. Here's how he put it in his letter to Philippians. Chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He says, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He's showing us here what it means to set your mind on earthly things. It is to say sex is harmless. Sex is natural. It's what our bodies were clearly made for, so we might as well enjoy as much of it as we can while we have the chance. And this is not what our bodies were made for. Our bodies, he says, were made for the Lord. Our bodies are meant to be vessels of his mercy. Our hands and our feet and our mouths are meant to proclaim by word and by deed the loving kindness of the Lord who's joined us to himself. Of course, we have organs as well. The Lord has made us with nerve endings and dopamine receptors. But he's given us even those things as well to bring honor to the Lord who made us for his glory. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And here's a shocking statement. The Lord, he says, is for the body. God is not anti-body. He's not ashamed of the body that he's made for you. He's not embarrassed by it. God is the inventor of the body positivity movement. Christ Jesus is not some Greek philosophical dualist. We've spoken of dualism recently in our sermons. Epictetus said this. He said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. That's how many Greek thinkers thought about the body. It was something ephemeral. It was something temporary. In the end, it was something disposable. When your soul was set free at last. But the Bible doesn't teach a disembodied salvation. It teaches salvation in body and soul. The Lord is for the body, he says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That's his proof that God is for the body, that God raised the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that Jesus was not raised as some sort of bodiless phantom. Jesus was raised from the dead and women held on to his feet. 
Jesus was raised from the dead and Thomas put his finger in the marks of the nails. Jesus was raised from the dead and he ate and he met with his disciples. And Paul is saying that if you are in Christ Jesus, you will receive the same treatment. If you are in Christ, your body is destined for something much greater than earthbound physical pleasure. If you are in Christ Jesus, your body is destined for resurrection, not destruction. A few years ago, I, I think maybe two years ago, I finally determined to build the workbench that I have wanted for myself for the last seven or eight years. The first step was, was going out to gather all the wood. So I spent several afternoons of my day off. You can ask my wife. She'll vouch for me. Spent several afternoons on my day off going around to various lumber yards. I spent several afternoons rifling through stacks and stacks of lumber, trying to find the cleanest and the straightest and the clearest Douglas fir that I could find. And I gathered it all up, and I brought it back to my garage, and I put it in its own special little stack, and then I got to work on the workbench. Well, things get in the way. I have other projects to attend to, and the workbench and the project has sat there. And in the meantime, I've been working on other things. And more than a few times over the last several years, I have thought to myself, I need a few pieces of wood, actually. It's just going to be stuck behind drywall somewhere. I'm just going to cut it up and turn it into shims. And I have been tempted more than a few times to take a circular saw to my stack of special Douglas fir. But then I remember what it's destined for. The plans that I have for it, though they're not fulfilled yet. That's just a very, very small picture of what the Lord is doing with you, dear believer. If you are in Christ Jesus, he has chosen you. He has picked you. He has lovingly selected you and set you aside for himself. The Lord has eternal purposes for you, and those purposes are far better than simply engaging in the lusts that you can feel with your flesh. It's why we ought to flee sexual immorality. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, God is committed to the resurrection of your body. Secondly, much more succinctly, God is committed to unite your body to Jesus. The scriptural idea for this second point is found in verses 15 and verse 17. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is a language of union with Christ, and it is the New Testament's way of speaking of Christians joined by faith to Jesus and receiving all of the blessings of belonging to God through that union with him. In Paul's letters, you're probably aware that this often takes the shape of being in Christ, of being in him. So Paul tells us, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He says that in Christ, our old self was crucified in order that our body of death might be brought to nothing. He says that in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. To be in Christ is to be united to him body and soul, for time and eternity. To be in Christ is to be safe. It is to be loved forever. 
Jesus uses the same idea but different language. John chapter 15, he speaks of union as this ongoing state of abiding in him and he in you, by the way. John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. Do you hear that reciprocal relationship of union with Christ? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. In union with Christ, we have everything. Separated from Christ, we have nothing. This is the message of the New Testament. This is the message of Jesus Christ. And so our union with him is the permanent covenantal bond through which every spiritual blessing comes to believers who are joined to Jesus. In other words, when we speak of salvation, we speak of union. When we speak of union, we speak of salvation. It works in both directions. The old quote by John Calvin bears repeating here. He says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, as long as that's true, he says, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. That's what Paul says you are doing, dear believer. Rather, that's what he says the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're united to him. You've been joined to him. You are members of his body, united by the Spirit to the Savior forever. He goes on, how then could we bear to break faith with the Lord through sexual immorality? The language that shows up between verses 15 and 17 is intentionally dramatic. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. In our day, you're not even allowed to use that word anymore. The socially sensitive term for a prostitute now is a sex worker. And that is an intentional move to legitimize sex for hire. It is an intentional move to destigmatize prostitution. Paul does not want to destigmatize the picture that he's giving us. He is trying to paint it in as stark a black and white as possible. He says, You already are members of Christ. How then can you become the members of a harlot? A few things to note about this example that Paul uses. First thing to notice is he doesn't actually say that this is already happening in Corinth. And like some of the other issues he deals with in the Corinthians, uh, he doesn't say, I've heard a report. He doesn't say that this is already happening, but this is the sort of thing that happened in the Roman world. It happened especially in places like Corinth. You may have heard some of those old claims about Corinth, that the, the verb, uh, they took the name of the city and they made it into a verb to Corinthianize, meant to play the harlot. Some of those things might have been slander. Some of those things might have been exaggerated. But regardless of whether or not it lived up to its reputation, the fact is that Corinth was a harbor town. Corinth sat on that tiny little isthmus connecting the Greek peninsula in the south to the mainland in the north. It was a gateway to the Mediterranean with a harbor on the east and a harbor on the west. From all points of the globe, traders and merchants came, and they all called Corinth their happy little sleepaway. 
Corinth was the kind of place that knew how to keep secrets. You could find anything you wanted in Corinth. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, we might say. Now add to that the fact that since time immemorial, pagan worship has been coupled with ritual prostitution. Again, it's not the same as it was about 200 years before Paul. Then there was an enormous temple to Aphrodite. Here in his day, it was still there, but it was smaller than it used to be. But it was still there, a temple to Aphrodite. And in the pagan mind, what better way to celebrate the goddess of erotic love than by doing those things that the goddess herself approved of? And so for a fee, anybody could go to the shrine. They could offer their offering. They could uh, pay to have their fling with the official temple attendants, men or women, both if your offering was big enough. In the eyes of the world at the time, it was all greeted with a wink and a nod. They would look at it and say, you know, everything's lawful, right? Food for the stomach. It all fit under that category. And Paul's approach, rather, is how dare you? How could you think to do that as believers in Christ Jesus? I think, honestly, sometimes when pastors preach this text, they overplay Paul's hand. They make it into something it's, it's not supposed to be for effect. Paul says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? One of the ways that this is preached or portrayed is that uh, Paul envisions uh, believers dragging Jesus with them over to the brothel. So it becomes a point for application. You know, remember that you take Jesus with you to every website you visit. They'll say, remember that he is there in every hotel room on that business trip. They'll say, remember that he also has to read every page of that novel you keep in your nightstand. That's not entirely untrue, actually. But that's not Paul's picture. Paul's picture envisions something far more stark than Jesus looking over your shoulder. Paul's picture is an amputation. So notice verse 16, he quotes that final line from Genesis chapter 2, one we read a few weeks ago that refers to the sexual union between a husband and a wife. Or do you not know, he says in verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. There we have what ought to be the result of a lifelong covenantal union. Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here it is cheapened. It's a coupling with no commitment. It's transactional, you understand. What's worse, the word take in verse 15. Paul says, shall I take the members of Christ? That word take actually means to take away, to separate to sever a bond that already exists. And in verse 16, the word join should be read as active rather than passive, one who joins himself to. It means to hold fast, it means to cling, and as the footnote in your SV points out, it's the same word used in Genesis 2, 24. So now perhaps you see what's wrong with sexual immorality. God has said in his word that man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife, and they shall be united for a lifetime. And Paul says that immorality is acting as though you could leave your Lord and cleave to sexual immorality and be united to that as long as you want. 
He doesn't say that Christians lose their salvation through a single sexual sin, but he is showing us that sexual immorality for the Christian is spiritual adultery. It is acting as though you were not already covenanted to someone else. Sexual immorality is treating the Lord who has joined us to himself as something to be put off. Like a sweater that you can take off as soon as it gets too hot or scratchy for your tastes. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Because the Lord has more in mind for your bodies than sexual immorality. He has better plans than temporal pleasures that enslave you and leave you empty. God is committed to the union between your body and your Savior. Thirdly, verses 18 to 20, we find that God is committed to the glory of your body. The resurrection of your body, the union of your body, the glory of your body. It's here at the close of the passage. Paul finally gets around to the business of imperatives. There are two of them. They're directly connected. The first one shows up in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. Flee from it. As in run away as fast as you can. Like a man running to escape a burning building. Like Joseph sprinting from the house of Potiphar. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't play around with it, he's saying. Don't try to flirt with it. Don't play footsie with sexual temptation to see just how close you can get to the line without going over from questionable to catastrophic. Don't have a minimalistic view of sexual sin the way that uh, many teenagers in their first relationship have a minimalistic view. And the question is always, well, what can I do? How far can I go? Paul's saying don't ask that question. The question is how far can you get away? Flee from sexual immorality. He says, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, we might add, or hers. He's telling us it's moral self-destruction, so run away from it, he says. Flee from sexual immorality. And the second imperative in verse 20. Glorify God in your body. That command actually comes at the end of another theological truth. Back it up a little bit into verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So, he concludes, glorify God in your body. I think it's here that we begin to realize that in order to put that first command, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, in order to put that first command into action, we really need faith to believe that verse 19 is true. I mean like really and actually true. I mean really trust it. We need to accept it as the bedrock of our reality. We need to have it work so far deep down into our souls that it becomes the filter through which every breath of this world in which we live passes as it comes into us. Because you know how it works. And you know how easy it is to sit here on Sunday morning, dressed in your nice clothes, sitting next to nice people, hearing nice things. You know how easy it is to agree with the pastor when he's in the pulpit and say, yes, yes, a temple for the Holy Spirit, I believe it. And it's true, by the way. It's absolutely, 
unequivocally true of every believer. Positively, without a doubt, absolutely true. The Holy Spirit of God indwells the lives of every one of his children. He fills them with joy and hope in Christ Jesus. There is not a, a two-tier system where some Christians are saved and some have the Holy Spirit. The New Testament tells us that if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, he is none of Christ's. There is one tier. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. It's true. He constantly works to subdue the lusts of the flesh. He helps us to engage with the work of mortification. He nudges us in the direction of Christ. He speaks conviction when we're walking in darkness. He meets us with comfort when we read his word. He breaks our hearts so that we can turn to him in repentance. It is true, dear believer. If you were in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in you. He resides in you in a more permanent way, though less visible, but a more permanent way than the Holy Spirit descended upon the sanctuary in the Shekinah glory so that Moses could not draw near. More permanent than that. And it's true that he fills the lives of his people so that we become walking and talking and breathing billboards of what God is capable of doing when he snatches a sinner out of the pangs of hell and death forever. It's true. And I know that many of you believe that with your very beating heart. But what I'm telling you is that it's easy to believe that here. It's easy to believe that on Sunday morning. But what about Sunday evening? What about when the work week is about to start and you wish it didn't have to and you want to find some distraction just to stretch the enjoyment out just a little bit longer? What about Wednesday evening? And by then, between now and then, a few things will have gone wrong in your week, and you might have had an argument with somebody that you can't get out of your head. And the improbable opportunity arises. It almost never shows up. You have the opportunity to take solace in the arms of someone to whom you are not married. What about on Friday night, when you're alone? Again. As you're beginning to wonder, you might always be, actually. What about in a few years from now when the kids are gone? When life slows down and you wonder, how did I get this far with this person that I've married? What about those times when life is harder than you wanted it to be and when glory seems like a word that shows up in the Bible but never in your experience? That's when the fight of faith gets difficult, isn't it? When we feel down, when we feel cheated, when we feel like we're missing out on something that it seems like everyone else gets to have but us. And in those moments, you need something more than a command to run away. You need more than somebody on a soapbox telling you sexual sin is bad. You need faith to believe that you have been purchased. You need to trust that you have been claimed you have become a permanent dwelling place for the Holy Spirit through the gift of Christ Jesus who has saved you to himself. You need faith to believe that your body will be resurrected and that quite frankly that's a process that has already begun. 
So Paul wrote to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's resurrection of the body, isn't it? It's union with Christ Jesus, isn't it? It's the glory of belonging to someone who has made you for a purpose greater than the pleasures of the flesh that leave you empty when they're gone. I'll admit that it's not going to make your temptations disappear magically. I'll admit that it will not silence the voice of the world when it comes calling for you. But it just might remind you of the glory that God has in store for those who are his. So Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, we pray that you would give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to know that he is all our joy. Give us faithfulness to you, not so that we might be saved, but because you are already at work in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, help us to believe and to receive this truth and to live it out as you give us your Holy Spirit to do so. We ask in Jesus' name.